Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. We're preaching our way through Jeremiah Burroughs' book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. This is a classic work of practical divinity. Divinity just means the things that pertain to God, the study of religion. And practical divinity is the things of God as they pertain to you and me and our lives. Jeremiah Burroughs was a 17th century Puritan pastor, and practical divinity, practical godliness, was something of a specialty of theirs. They knew the truth that doctrine is, has to be lived. It's meant to be lived. You think of James in his letter saying, Uh, You show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. The Puritans knew that faith is not really able to be claimed or can't really be believed until it is put into practice, until we're using it and living it out. And they're especially good at at helping and exhorting people to live out their faith. That's why we read them and why they're valuable today. They're helpful personally. They're helpful as an example of how to preach and teach and counsel others. So we commend the Puritans to you. Banner of Truth, as Tim mentioned last week, has done a a lot of publishing and republishing of the Puritans. And they've done this series called the Puritan Paperbacks, which we, if you're interested in reading the Puritans yourself, this is a great place to start. It's a wonderful series, classics in there, and it's well edited, inexpensive, and generally pretty short. So that's a good place to start. And this is a wonderful contribution to that series, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Contentment is something that we need to hear about. It's a topic we need to meditate on and be taught about in the best of times. You and me have this incredible capacity to grumble and complain and murmur and get despondent and despair, even when things are going so well. The slightest little interruption or inconvenience or trouble that comes into our lives, we are ready to grumble and complain about it. That's you and me. So we need to hear about this theme constantly and even in the best of times, but especially here and now in the midst of a pandemic. We're surrounded as we are by so much inconvenience and trouble and worry and anxiety. I don't know about you, I'm over this. It was nice, I'll admit, at the beginning to be down that hole that we're in. Uh, It was refreshing, it was kind of a nice change of pace. I'm sure I've been hearing from a lot of you that the, the same is true of you. It hasn't been that way for everybody I know, but for me it has been nice. But I'm over it. I'm ready to move on. But I'm not just over it. I'm also, maybe more importantly, tending to resent the long, hard work I see ahead of us of climbing out of the hole that we're in. There's so much unknown, so much uncertainty, so much work, so much inconvenient work associated with moving forward from here. To start with, there's the question of like, so did we do anything? Was it worth it? Uh, If it was necessary to begin with, is it necessary still? How long will social distancing be with us? Will I be able to hug any of you in the near future? There's a thousand such thoughts that we're facing, such worries and complexities that we're facing um, right now. It's a hard work that we uh, have before us to do and it's inconvenient work. 
speaking to me and to my heart and to us uh, wherever we're at, Jeremiah Burroughs, one of the most helpful biblical illustrations he uses in this first chapter of the book is that of Noah and the ark. I want to read you just a, a short paragraph from Burroughs opening up for us uh, Noah and the difficulty that he faced and his willingness to trust God in it. Here's what Burroughs says. You know how Noah was put into the ark. Certainly he knew there was much affliction in the ark with all kinds of creatures shut up with him for 12 months together. It was a mighty thing, yet God having shut him up, even though the waters were assuaged, that's calmed, even when the water, the rain stopped and the waters were calm, Noah was not to come out of the ark till God bid him. So though we be shut up in great afflictions, and we may think of this and that and the other means to come out of that affliction, yet till God opens the door, we should be willing to stay. God has put us in, and God will bring us out. Now, is that how you think about the last 11 months? God has put us in. Is that how you think about the work ahead of us as a church, as families, as a society? God will bring us out. For some of us, the most important thing that I have to say that, to, that we need to hear is this. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in all the earth. God will bring us out. Now, that does not mean that we just sit on our hands and have no responsibility to work through and give ourselves to the work um, uh, that God has put before us to do. We have minds, we have jobs, we have responsibilities, and we're to see to them with all of the gifts that God has given us. We're going to be talking about that some today and opening it up, what contentment is and what contentment isn't. It isn't a, a, a get-out-of-work-free card. We have responsibility. But I read that short excerpt to you in the hope that it will whet your appetite for this book in this series. It's a book full of wisdom and truth that we need to hear, work, uh, wisdom from God's word. The rare jewel is an extended meditation on Philippians 4, verse 11b, where the Apostle Paul writes, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And Burroughs says about that in the first sentence of his book that this statement of Paul's is a very timely cordial, a refreshing drink to revive the drooping spirits of the saints in these sad and sinking times. Now, last week, Pastor Bailey made the point that contentment is not natural to us. It's not innate or, uh, or intuitive even. It is something that must be learned. True contentment, biblical Christian contentment must be obtained and it is obtained only by learning it. Paul goes on in verse 12 of Philippians 4 to say that Christian contentment is like a mystery or a secret. He says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret, uh, the mystery of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So Paul had peered into the mystery of contentment. He had unlocked and opened its secret. He discovered how to, um, and he had learned how to remain steady, how to keep calm, how to be at peace in his heart and his mind in every circumstance, whatever was going on around him. He knew how to maintain equilibrium, how to have a sense of proportion. 
He knew how to not let himself get flustered or overwhelmed or depressed by the challenges and the difficulties that he faced. He was not in bondage to fear or anxiety. He knew how to honor God. He knew how to be happy in God um, in all kinds of circumstances and especially in, in trouble. Paul knew how to sing in jail. So he wasn't, his, his feelings, his spirits weren't the playthings of his circumstances. Now, does that sound nice? Uh, can we all agree that that sounds at least ideal? That's something that we should aspire to in our lives. Well, there's a secret to this, says Paul. It's something that must be learned, and it can be learned because I've learned it. Now, Paul is actually asserting a doctrine here. He's not just saying something about himself. He's, he's, he's calling us to, uh, to obey God with him and to learn from him as he has learned. We extrapolate from this the Christian truth, the doctrine, the biblical requirement, as Burroughs puts it, that to be well-skilled, well-versed in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, the glory, and the excellence of a Christian. To be well-skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, the glory, and the excellence of a Christian. So in other words, we are required by God to follow Paul's example when he says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. This same requirement is established by other parts of Scripture. In 1 Timothy 6, 6 um, and verse 8, we see both the duty and the glory of Christian contentment. In verse 8, Paul says, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. That's the duty that we have. With simple things, with basic needs met, we are to be content. And then the glory he had mentioned previously in verse 6, he says this, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Christian contentment is such a glorious thing, such an excellent thing, that Paul says it's as if godliness itself is completely worthless to us if it's not accompanied and joined with contentment. So Christian contentment is not an optional upgrade or add-on to our lives. It's something that we all must seek. It's our Christian duty before God to obtain and to learn this secret, this mystery. Now, the mystery or the secret of contentment is not so much in the definition of what it is, but is more in the acquiring of it. How do you come by this thing? It's, it's, that's what Paul is saying is a secret and a mystery, and Burroughs is going to open up for us that secret and that mystery as he goes throughout Scripture on this theme in coming weeks. Today, though, we are going to start where it is important to start, which is with definitions. It's important to define your terms at the beginning of any argument. So we're going to work, start today, to define what is Christian contentment. And we're going to do a lot of that by saying what it's not. Because we are all in danger when we're, we're given some new tool or some new Christian principle or idea of becoming monsters with it and misusing it and abusing everybody else around us with that new principle. So Christian contentment, um, it's important, just as important to know what it's not as it is what it is. Burroughs gives this definition in his book, and it should be visible for you on the screen if you're watching at home. He says, contentment is an inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. Let's say that together. Contentment 
is an inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. Now, in classic Puritan style, Burroughs breaks that down into nine components and goes on at length, subheadings and all, uh, to describe and open up and unpack that definition. Uh, We're not going to have time even today to get into every part of it, but I do hope to hit at least the first two terms um, this morning because they're very important. We're going to, uh, so first, contentment is a sweet inward thing. That's his first point. It's an inward thing. It's a matter of the heart. It's not first and foremost something that we express on our face. It's not something that we um, change about our words. It's something that must change about our hearts. David says in Psalm 131 verse 2, Surely I have composed and quieted, not my tongue, not my Facebook posts, not my Twitter feed, but my soul. I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. So a weaned child is a child that can now sit on its mother's lap without squealing for milk. It's content. It doesn't, it doesn't associate that with mom anymore. <laughs> it can just be happy with mom. David says that's how his soul has become with respect to his circumstances. Contentment is a matter of the soul or of the heart. It's not merely the ability to hold your tongue or appear outwardly placid or serene while inwardly you're bursting at the seams with discontent and murmuring. Burroughs uses the illustration of, of shoes. It's a really, really helpful illustration. We've all known a pair of shoes that we loved the look of, but when we put them on, they were completely uncomfortable. We couldn't put up with them. They pinched our feet. A lot of us are like that pair of shoes. Nice on the outside, appear serene and calm, but underneath the surface is brewing all kinds of trouble, all kinds of confusion, all kinds of bitterness, all kinds of things seething there in our hearts. This is not Christian contentment. This is lying. But who are we deceiving? God sees, uh, we're told in, in 1 Samuel 16, God sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So true contentment is not an outward thing, a man-oriented, man-focused, our neighbor thing. It's first and foremost a matter of our heart, a God-oriented thing. So this is a call, first and foremost, to examine our hearts. Have you composed and quieted your soul? like a weaned child within you. Contentment is an inward thing. Yes, of course, it's going, to, it's going to out itself. It's going to have its effect on our words, on our face, on our Twitter feed. It's going to have an effect, but it doesn't start on the outside. It starts on the inside. That's the first thing. Contentment is an inward thing. The second part of the definition, though, is that it is a sweet inward quietness, a quiet of the heart. So the contented heart is calm and still. How has your heart been in the midst of this pandemic? Has it been calm and still? Lots of difficulties, lots of reasons to not be calm, but how has your heart responded to those reasons? With contentment? With calm? 
Now, if we're careful, this is one of the places we can quickly go wrong with as we're starting to learn this mystery of contentment. We get a, our, a, the first little handle on it, and we can start immediately abusing it. And here's some ways we need to, or some things we need to know about contentment, what it's not, so that we don't do that. A quiet heart is not opposed to several things, and some of these things surprised me, and they may surprise you. It is not opposed to really feeling and being sensitive to pain. A quiet heart is not opposed to really feeling, being sensitive to, being aware of, and living in pain. Godliness does not call us to deny suffering as if it's not a fact of life, it's not something that we're experiencing and really feeling. Jesus does not say to us, that cross I told you to take up, you need to take it up, but you also need to pretend like it's not a cross. Jesus does not say that. He just says, take up your cross daily. And he knows it is a cross. We don't have to deny the pain or the burden of the cross. God gives his people freedom to feel and not deny what is difficult in their lives, the pain and the sorrow and the difficulty of it. How many times have we all said, when somebody said, how you doing? Fine. Good. Or even worse, wonderful, when it's not true. There's a tendency in the Christian church among us to be super spiritual, to be more spiritual than Jesus commands us to be, if that's possible. To be pretend, fake. That is, to put on a happy face and to lie, as if that's what we're called to do, to, to sort of appear placid and calm, or even amazingly happy, over-the-top happy all of the time, when actually it would be more honest and more helpful for us to respond, you know, I'm really struggling. You could pray for me. You don't have to go into all the details with every person and every circumstance to simply be honest. You know, I'm having difficulties. I can't really talk about them. Or I can. Let me share with some with what's, on, what's going on in my life. And, and you need to pray for me. I'm having a hard time. That more often than not would be the truth. The Christian life is difficult. And we're not called to deny that difficulty. God does not need us acting as if we're above it all, as if he's put us in this wonderful place of sitting up high and looking down on the victorious Christian life. That's not true for anybody. We're here in the midst of a battle and a war with our flesh, with the devil, with the world, and... Uh, that war is, is bloody and that war is difficult. There's no need, no requirement to lie about it. Of course we should have faith. Of course we should have joy. But I'm not talking about faith and joy. I'm talking about lying. We should not lie. And that's not a requirement or that's not something that goes along with Christian contentment or learning it. A contented heart is, and a quiet heart is not in opposition to feeling real pain and suffering and acknowledging it, being honest about it. It's also not a, a, a opposed to moaning and complaining both to God and our friends a, in an orderly way, as Burroughs puts it. We, we have the freedom to make our complaint to God, to moan and complain both to him 
and to our friends about the real difficulties we face. Our hearts ought to be quiet under God's discipline, yes, but we may complain. What do I mean by complaint and by moaning in an orderly way? Now, it's not an angry shaking of the fist. It's not a despondency that can't be comforted. But in a, it's a quiet, still, in a quiet, still, and submissive way, we can unburden ourselves to God and to our friends. We can cry out to him by way of complaint. The book of Psalms would be a record of sinful prayers if this were not so. We can't take David's words in Psalm 131 and say, well, now that prayer is when David really got it right. But over here in Psalm 38, which I'm about to read, he, you know, he just lost the plot. He's not, he's not a contented Christian here. Here's Psalm 38, 2 to 5. This is an example of unburdening our hearts before God and making our complaint to him. He says, For your arrows, God, have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I'm bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I'm benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. We have this freedom, and Christian contentment is not in opposition to us making use of this orderly complaint, this legitimate, God-honoring way of unburdening, unbosoming our hearts to God in prayer. Nor is it in opposition to us talking to our Christian brothers and sisters and saying, this is what I'm going through. It's very difficult. Would you pray for me? That's in no way a violation or breach of Christian contentment. Now, also, Christian contentment or quietness of heart is not opposed to seeking help and relief from difficult circumstances that we're in, or seeking to be delivered from our circumstances through lawful means. So it's not godly to, to sit here um, suffering and not make use of the means that are lawful and legitimate that God has put in our lives to escape or to change our circumstances, or to gain freedom, or to gain relief from our troubles. If you, had a, if you have a headache, it's not spiritual to sit there and not make use of Advil if you're able, with your body composition, to benefit from Advil. It's not more spiritual to, to swear off medications or remedies. If you have cancer, faith does not require you or is not in opposition to undergoing chemotherapy. Your job it doesn't support you well enough or your family, it's not making ends meet. God, faithfulness or contentment does not require that you stay with the company. You may have options. There are other jobs and you are free to seek them out. And that's in no way a violation or a breach of contentment. Not necessarily. Remember what the Apostle Paul says to slaves in 1 Corinthians 7.21. Were you called while a slave? Called to, to Christ while you were a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. 
So God brings difficulties into our lives, and though he wants us to sit quietly under them and wait on him in prayer and learn the lessons that he has for us in them, he leaves us free, wonderfully free, to pursue lawful remedies for relief. Political remedies, judicial remedies, medical remedies, practical remedies. Who knows? God may want to deliver and intend to deliver us from our present troubles by those means. He works through often and normally through means. So Christian contentment, Christian faith is not opposed to seeking relief from suffering through lawful means. It's not opposed to making our complaint before God. It's not opposed to us acknowledging the real pains and sufferings in our lives. Those are some things that a quiet heart, a contented heart, is not opposed to. What is a contented heart opposed to? So here's some sins that we need to examine ourselves for as we consider what contentment is. A quiet heart is opposed to murmuring and complaining against God and his ministers. I don't just mean me, minister, but I mean all of the authorities that God has put in our lives. He calls them his ministers for our good. And it's our tendency to murmur and grumble and complain against him and his ministers. This is what the Israelites did constantly in the wilderness. They said things to Moses and and to Aaron, did you bring us out here to die from hunger? We were better off in Egypt. That's murmuring and complaining. And you might say, what's the distinction between that and what David was praying in in Psalm 38, I think it was? Uh, There is one. You figure it out. There is a distinction. One is submissive and quiet and, and unburdening sorrow to God. Another one is just complaining, objecting, and in a stiff-necked and proud and hard-hearted way. We can't bear that kind of complaining that the Israelites exhibit in the wilderness with our children or with our employees. God can't bear it with us. Quiet hearts do not murmur and complain against God. A quiet heart, a contented heart, is also not opposed to what Burroughs calls anxious vexation or vexing we might say fretting. It is opposed to anxious vexing, to fretting. We can grieve in our troubles. We can mourn. We can be sorrowful. But we must not fret about them. There's a big difference between those two things. Um, David, or the psalmist says in Psalm 37, do not fret. It leads only to evil. Fretting leads to evil. And Paul says in Philippians, be anxious For nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. If you have a request to be delivered from your trouble with thanksgiving, let it be known to God. A a quiet heart is not anxious or fretful. A quiet heart is also not tumultuous. What's that mean? Tumultuous. It's like this, you know, a storm raging. When our thoughts and our feelings run wild and are out of control, making us unstable and confused in how we think and feel. This, this is being tumultuous. And a calm and quiet and contented heart is not like that. This is how we get sometimes. I've been 
really encouraged and helped, actually, as I watched my wife teach our children about this. And I'm sure she got this analogy from someplace else. Uh, maybe Rachel Jankovic, I don't know. But she says this to our kids, your emotions, your feelings are a gift from God, but they come to you at first like a wild horse. And it's your job, your duty as a young person to learn more and more how to break, control, and ride that horse and make it work for you instead of running amok and dragging you ever which way it wants to go. You're to master that horse. That's your emotions and that's your job. A quiet, contented heart is not a tumultuous heart. It's a heart that has learned the discipline, the secret of controlling its thoughts and its feelings. It's also opposed to anxiousness that distracts from doing what God requires. We've all had this experience. I'm so worried about that email that I just wrote that I can't do my work. I can't feed my kids. I can't serve my employer because <laughs> there's, I, I'm dreading this thing or there, I don't know what the response is going to be. So I'm fretful. I'm anxious. And it's keeping me from doing what God requires of me. I've got so much to get done today. I'm so overwhelmed by it that I, I, can, I can't read my Bible and pray. I've, I've just got too much to do. I'm afraid that I won't get that job, that I'll face rejection, and I'll he'll hear the word no, that I'm just going to watch the movie instead of making the call to see if they got my application and had, had a chance to review it. This is where we live. These are the ways we escape duty out of fear, out of tumultuousness in our minds. Most of the obedience that God calls us to is actually pretty normal and basic and just common. Obedience is not this glamorous thing. It's just like, it's just mundane most of the time. But Luther said this about normal duty, and the, the reformers were big on this theme, and it was a big part of what made the Reformation what it was. They dignified the normal and the mundane and the common parts of life. Luther said, ordinary works done in faith and from faith are more precious than heaven and earth. That means, really, changing diapers, putting food on the table, earning your paycheck, serving your employer, if done in faith and from faith, is, is service of God, and it is more precious to him than heaven and earth. So as Christians who understand that in the ordinary mundane things of life, we're serving God, we must not let fear or anxiety pull us away from doing what he has put before us to do. We must serve him. We should treat our anxieties and our fears like Nehemiah treated the heathen kings that ganged up on him to try to keep him from rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Do you remember how he responded to them in Nehemiah 6? He said, I'm doing the great work. I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? That's how we should speak to those troublesome thoughts and fears and worries that, that try to pull us away from doing the work of God, the mundane, normal, basic work of God. We should speak to him that way. I don't have time for you. I'm doing a great work. A quiet heart is opposed to sinking discouragements. When things don't come together like you hoped, 
when life or ministry gets hard and things seem to be coming apart at the seams, when you feel like you've stepped out in faith, but God has not responded in, uh, in a way that you hoped or expected, and he seems to be frustrating you at every turn, when you come up against some challenge that's insurmountable apart from a miracle, what do you do? What's your response? Do you despair? Do you droop? If so, you have forgotten that God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. I'm just, I'm going to read the, tech, the words of that great hymn to you because they open up this incredible truth that we forget. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm, deep in unfathomable minds Minds, minds, like silver mines, not minds. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Why does God frustrate our efforts and, um, or at least at times seem to, cause the, our work to not prosper? Why does he do that? Here's the, the answer that Burroughs gives in his first chapter. He says, God often makes the fairest flowers of man's endeavors to wither and brings improbable things to pass, like we made budget this year, <laughs> and like how we feel every year about it, God brings white. He frustrates and makes the the fairest flowers of our endeavors to 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 wither, and He brings improbable things to pass in order that the glory of the undertaking may be given to Himself. God would have us to depend on Him, though we do not see how the thing may be brought about. God brings glory to Himself. We should trust him even when our plans seem to be coming to nothing, when we've stepped out in faith and we've taken a risk for him and it's like, oh my goodness, I'm too far out on the limb and I'm never going to get back. At that moment, our hearts must be calm. We must trust and have a quiet spirit. Quietness of heart is also not opposed to what Burroughs calls sinful shiftings and shirkings to get relief and help. This means where we said earlier that we, we, have, we can make use of all lawful means at our disposal to escape trouble in our life, we must resist, on the other hand, all unlawful things, all sinful shiftings and shirkings to try to get out from under the pressure that's mounting in our lives. I already mentioned that, that we're free to use lawful means, but we're not free to use uh, sinful means. Examples of this are all through Scripture, 
That is, people turning to, in, to their fleshly means or to sinful things um, in order to, to, to get the answer that they need, that they feel they need, that they want from God. We see this at least twice in the life of King Saul. Remember at the end of his life when he runs to the witch of Endor. He's been, he's been under God's judgment and curse. He's been rejected by God. He needs an answer, a word from the Lord. He doesn't have one, so he turns to a witch, a spiritist, which is an abomination to God and further brings judgment on himself. But all, before that, earlier in his life, he was... He was facing a battle, and, and uh, Samuel was supposed to offer the sacrifice to, that they wanted to give to God in order to have his blessing as they marched into battle. And if Samuel didn't show up when, he, when Saul expected him, so Saul went ahead and offered the sacrifice. And this, again, was sin. Abraham and Sarah sinfully used Hagar, Sarah's slave, in order to fulfill their own, in their own strength and in their own ways and in their own time the promise that God had made to them concerning a child. Then his grandson Jacob uh, joined with his mother in lying to his father Isaac because they weren't content to wait on God's time and God's means for obtaining the promise. And this is what many of us do in the corruption and the weakness of our flesh. We turn to sinful means, sinful ways, um, to to get relief, to get help, to get the answer that we feel we need. We're not content to wait upon the Lord. God put us in. God will bring us out. We have trouble with that second part. How about you? Where do you turn for relief from your troubles? Alcohol? Pornography? Work? Obsessive reading of the news? Your own ability to muscle through neurotic habits that give you a sense of control to food, to working out. There's a thousand million places that we can turn sinfully. Not all of them are inherently sinful. You, you could tell that from the list that I rattled off. Not everything that we turn to sinfully is in itself sinful, but we can make some of the things are. Some of the things just absolutely nobody should ever turn to. They're just in themselves illegitimate. But we make lots of legitimate things an idol, and we seek for comfort and safety, an answer from them that only God can give. And we must not do that. If you're in the habit of turning to illegitimate or unlawful and fleshly solutions to ease your pain or relieve your fear, you don't have a quiet heart. And you desperately need to learn the secret of contentment that we're going to try and open up for you in the coming weeks. I hope all of us right now are able to think of unlawful things or uh, lawful and legitimate things that we seek sinfully or we turn to sinfully. We have an idol of them in our heart that we give ourselves to instead of going to God for comfort or waiting upon him. And we need to repent of those things and we need to seek God we need to seek this grace of contentment which comes from his hand. Now, lastly, a quiet heart is absolutely opposed to rebellion in the heart against God. You remember that Job's wife said to him in his misery, Job, curse God and die. Job refused to do it. He kept his integrity. He kept the faith. 
But how many of us have cursed God? There is nothing more opposed to a spirit of contentment, which is our duty and, and the excellence and glory of a Christian and, and a thing that without which godliness itself is of no value. There's nothing more opposed to, to contentment than that kind of rebellion, that willingness in the midst of trouble and difficulty to curse God. Brothers and sisters, we must not do that. We must flee from that. We must keep that soundly under our heel. It's a, it is something that is common. It is common to curse God in our hearts, if not also with our mouths. But we must not do it. Flee from those things and plead with God for a submissive and a quiet and a contented heart. Ask him, and he will give you the peaceful blessing of contentment. Contentment is an inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. And that's the rich and full definition of what the grace of contentment is. And I hope that you're not, you've not just con, you're not just convinced this morning that that's something good that you need, but you're also sitting there at home thinking to yourself, that's something good that I need, and I really want it. If that's you, it's my prayer in these series of sermons that God would bless you with it and bless me with it. This is something we need. God give it to us, and amen. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be, be pleased to grant us individually as families and as a church with this grace of contentment and that our hearts would be quiet and still before you in every circumstance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.